0: Revelation chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 is where we're going to start. But let me just say this to you as we begin in our study of Revelation. I'm not going to be teaching chapter 1 or chapter 2 or chapter 3. I'm going to be taking some excerpts from chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 as we go through. But as you're going to see tonight as we look at this study of the book of Revelation, and I'll clarify it some more in a little bit, John was told to write what he saw, which is the vision of Jesus. So I'm going to show you what that is. He was also told to write what is, which is the church age, and then what is to take place after this. I believe so strongly from my understanding of the scriptures and from the events in the world and what's going on in our day, I believe we are very, very close to the end of the church age. And because of that, I believe that God wants me to teach the book of Revelation starting in chapter four. We're going to launch from chapter one tonight and we'll begin to get into chapter four in a little bit tonight. But I believe that we're going to study the Bible, the book of Revelation from the point where he said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. And we're going to be looking at what's going to happen after the rapture of the church from that point on. But we're not also going to do it chapter four, then chapter five, then chapter six, which is how I've done my other Bible studies. Wherever we left off is where we picked up. What we're going to do this time is we're actually going to break it down. And with Tony, he's done that in his book, he and I have sat down and we have broken the book of Revelation into what we believe is the order that it's going to happen. And so I'm going to teach it to you chronologically. So that means we're going to jump around, as you're going to see. We're going to get into chapter 4 and chapter 5, but then once we finish chapter 5, we won't get to chapter 6 because we're going to jump to chapter 7. And there's a reason why. Folks, let me just tell you, I've had the privilege of teaching the book of Revelation intensely and studying it for 20 years. been preaching for 30, been studying prophecy for 20, and those of you that know me, this is my passion. I can't wait to show you how easy it is to understand the book of Revelation if you take it literally. Take it literally. And I'm going to lay that all out for you. So let's read Revelation chapter one, verses one through three. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John wrote this book while he was in prison on the Isle of Patmos in uh, AD 96 under the the emperor Domitian's rule. Now, for those of you that want to really get into the introduction of a book and all the background and all that stuff, go to my website. If you go to just www.justapreacherministries.org, you will find on there, you'll find Bible Studies. Click on Bible Studies, then click on Revelation 2009. And for those of you that were here when I taught on Revelation back in 2009, we spent 32 hours on the book of Revelation, from chapter 1 all the way through in order. You want introductory stuff? Go there. It'll all be there. But what I want to do tonight is just explain that Jesus is the one who appeared to John on the island of Patmos. And John wrote down what Jesus said he was to write down. It's interesting, as you'll see later on in our study as we get there, it'll be many, many weeks down the road, that there's a point where he sees some things and he starts to write down what he sees and God won't let him write down those things. What we have recorded is what Jesus had told him to record. And so when we say, who wrote the book of Revelation? It's kind of a trick question. John put it on paper, but Jesus wrote it. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave John to what? Look closely at what it says. John, Jesus' purpose in revealing these things to John was to show who, according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, his servants the things that must soon take place. We're going to get to that in just a second. Look closely at what he says. Jesus told John these things in AD 96, and John was to write the things down that Jesus told him to write down so that his servants would know what must soon take place. His servants, as you're going to see as we get into this study, includes two groups, the church and the tribulation saints. This message of the book of Revelation is for us who are alive at this time, we call the age of grace. And again, I'll clarify a lot of these things some more as we go into tonight. But also it's for the tribulation saints. Those who are going to come to faith during that seven year period of what the Bible calls Jacob's trouble that's going to about to come on the earth very, very soon but look closely at the word must in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must take place. What word do we usually get caught up on though? We get caught up on the soon, don't we? I'm coming back to the word soon in a little bit. Hang on to the word soon. But because the word soon has thrown so many people for a loop, because they said, well wait a minute, it's been 2,000 years almost since this was written. What does soon mean? Well, I'll deal with that in a little bit. But because of the word soon, we have actually missed the word must. Actually, three times in this book, Jesus said that these things that we're going to be studying must take place. Go with me to chapter 4. Look at verse 1. After this, John says, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what, what's that next word? Must Must take place after this. Go to Revelation 22, and look at verse 6. At the end of all this, at the end of this book that Jesus had given John to write down, in verse 6, And it says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what what must. And there's that word soon again take place. Folks, I want you to understand for too long, people have said that the book of Revelation is just apocalyptic writing. And what they mean by that is, is it's just symbolic words that just pretty much say that we're going to win in the end. I want you to hear from my mouth If Jesus said this, these things must take place, is this symbolic or is it literal? Literal. It's literal. And I'm going to show you actually tonight that God's word has symbolic language. There's lots of symbolic language in the Bible, but I found that just about every time I can find that God's word used symbolic language, the scripture then clarified what the symbolism represented. Let me give you some examples. In, In Revelation chapter 1, look at verses 12 through 16 and then verse 20. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength." Look at verse 20, "...as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven st- stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." So in other words, even though it used symbolic language and said that he held these stars in, these, in the midst of the lampstands, the Scripture then clarifies what they represented. Let me give you a couple other examples of what I'm talking about. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. This is talking about the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt. And they were under the cloud and passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all are, all sorry, and all ate from the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was who. Remember that time in the wilderness when they were thirsty, and God provided water from the rock? Well, guess what? The Bible tells us that the rock represented Jesus. If John, we're not going to take the time to turn there, but in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, Jesus stands up in the midst of Jerusalem at the feast and he says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of him will flow rivers of living water. He'll never thirst again. And then the scripture says right after that, By this he meant the Holy Spirit, by which those who believed in him were later to receive. So when Jesus said, out of you we're going to flow rivers of living water, The scripture then explained that means the Holy Spirit. Do you see what I'm saying? All the way through scripture, I could take more time and and, and just kind of beat this into your brains, but I don't think you need it. I can tell on your faces. You're probably with me here. Ezekiel 37 talks about the valley of dry bones and how Ezekiel was told to prophesy to these bones and they miraculously came back to life. And then he was told to breathe breath into them. And then Jesus said to him, he said, these bones are the house of Israel. Again, it clarifies what the symbolic language talked about. In Zechariah chapter 5, again, write it down if you want to double check me. In Zechariah chapter 5 verses 5 through 8, we're going to look at it later on when we get to the destruction of Babylon. In Zechariah chapter 5 verses 5 through 8, you'll see that Zechariah is shown this woman in a basket and he's told the basket represents the iniquity in all the land and the woman represents wickedness. And again, the symbolism is explained. For years when I first started studying prophecy and when I first started reading the book of Revelation, I remember getting to chapter 17 and 18 and trying to figure out who Babylon was. Well maybe Babylon's America, or maybe Babylon's the Roman Catholic Church. You know what? Babylon's Babylon. <laughs> and I can't wait until we get there, unless Jesus comes and gets us first which is cool with me, But. I can't wait to show you that very clearly from Scripture it is so easy to see that when the Bible talks about the future destruction of Babylon, it's literally talking about the city of Babylon. It's being rebuilt actually in our time, it's a lot easier for us to understand this. And I'm going to show you when we get there that the Bible actually says that the headquarters for the Antichrist Kingdom is going to be in the city of Babylon. By the way, is that surprising considering that's where all false religion and materialism and building a name for ourselves began? back at the Tower of Babel, not going to be very surprising that at the end, that's where it's all going to culminate again, and God's going to ultimately destroy them. So as we do this study, I want you to understand, if Jesus said these things must take place, and the, you, if you study the scripture literally, this passage, this whole book is going to come alive. But I have a second purpose as well. Also my desire is to show you how much of the book of Revelation has already been written in the rest of the Bible. A lot of people say that the book of Revelation was just written at the end because during that time Christians were being persecuted. And so John wrote this book that says we win in the end. Actually, I'm going to show you that over three quarters of what we have written in the book of Revelation had already been written in the Old and the New Testaments. All Revelation does is compile it. So as we study this, those of you that have been under my teaching, you know I'm going to just give you a ton of scriptures over and over because I don't have anything to say. But my gifting is to take all this stuff that God's put in my head and in my heart and to communicate it to you and to show you as we look at Revelation, as we read and we go through it chronologically, the order it's going to happen, I'm going to be jumping back to Zechariah. I'm going to be jumping back to Ezekiel. I'm going to be jumping back to Genesis. I'm going to be jumping back to all these places and showing you how God had already said all this. All Revelation does is put it in an order for us. For example, does the scripture talk a lot about the fact that there's a coming kingdom on the earth? I mean, the Jews expected it. That's why they thought that Jesus was going to come and set up his kingdom right away. They didn't understand that he had to first come and die for the sins of the world. And then he would come back and set up his kingdom. That's why even after the 40 days that Jesus was, uh, after he'd risen from the dead and he'd been teaching his disciples for those 40 days, after that time period, right before he ascended back to the Father, the disciples even said, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They knew the scriptures had talked about the fact there was a coming kingdom on the earth. All Revelation does is help us understand that we know now that it's going to be a thousand years. When we get to chapter 20, you'll see that. That's why we call it the Millennial Kingdom. We wouldn't call it the Millennial Kingdom unless Revelation had shown us that it was going to be a thousand years long. And so, folks, I don't know what kind of an understanding you have of the book of Revelation. Some of you, like me, have been studying it for years and love it. Some of you are just curious and you've never even heard the book before. Others have read it a little bit, but you got confused. Let me just say to all of you. If you'll come and you'll start to take it literally, and let me teach it to you, showing you how this has all been here, and when we put it together, I promise you, you'll walk out of here going, that's actually one of the easiest books to understand in the whole Bible. Who do you think has been trying to confuse everybody? You know what's really shocking to me, though, is I travel all around and I speak. And for those of you that don't know me, I see a lot of faces out here tonight that are brand new. and We're glad that you're here. What shocks me as I travel around, and for those that don't know me, what I do now is I actually spent the last 10 years. Actually, this past Saturday was my 10-year anniversary of when I resigned from the pastor of this church. Been in this just a preacher traveling thing for 10 years. God's been awesome. But as I travel around and speak to pastors and churches, you'd be amazed how many pastors don't even teach on the book of Revelation they say, well, it's a confusing book and there's so many different views as to how to interpret it. I just don't wanna cause controversy, so I just stay away from it. And I take them back to Revelation chapter one. Go back to Revelation chapter one. Look again at verse three. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Wait a minute, I say to these pastors, this is the only book that says there's a blessing if you read it. (laughs) And that's the one you're gonna skip? All right, let's deal with this word soon, though. Y'all have been patient enough. These things must soon take place. What's hurt us is, and that's okay, that's what my job is, most of us don't know Greek real well, and neither do I, but I know how to study. The Greek word translated soon is the word, if you were to write it down, if you were to take a note, it's E-N space T-A-X-E-I-I, N-Taxei, or taxei, however you want to pronounce it. It means quickly or speedily. Actually, it's where we get our word tachometer. You own a garage. you get got a mechanic at your place there, Neil. Does a, does, a, does a tachometer measure how long something happens, or does it measure how fast something happens? Exactly. This word translated soon actually could have been better translated quickly or speedily. Because as you're about to see, once God flips that switch, and these things begin to take place, what we're going to start studying in chapter four, the things that are going to take place after the church age. Once he flips that switch and we move to the next dispensation, which I'm going to explain in a second, things are going to pick up speed like you wouldn't believe. When you start seeing the opening of the seals and all the things that are going to happen on the earth and then the antichrist rise and the false prophet and all these things and all the stuff that's going to be going on all over this globe, you'll be amazed that it all can happen in just seven years but when these things do take place they will take place quickly all right but some of you are probably already ahead of me and you said okay jim i'm good with that translation of that word soon into quickly but how are you going to deal with verse three where it says the time is near i mean john wrote this down again like you have even said almost two thousand years ago how could it be near if it's been almost two thousand years well That's because we have to understand that God has worked in certain ways at certain times. And in God's plan, he has been working for his glory and for his purposes in different ways throughout history. And I'm going to lay this out for you. Someone says, oh, Jim, I know where you're going. You're one of those dispensation people. Yes, but I can prove you are, too. How many of you believe in an Old Testament and a New Testament? Show of hands. Dispensationalists. Because God worked one way in the Old Testament, and He's worked another way in the New Testament. Listen closely. Salvation has always been, in each time period, by faith in God's Word and His provision for man's sin. All along, salvation has been given to those who had faith in what God has said and and how He has provided for their sin. Salvation has never changed. But how God works at each time period has been different for His purposes. Uh, let, me, let me show you what I mean real quick. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. A real quick example of what I'm talking about. Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. Do you see it? Here the scripture says, in the past God spoke through the prophets, but now He's speaking through who? His Son. In other words, that's how He worked in that time period. He's working a different way in this time period. Please don't misunderstand. Salvation has always been by faith in what God has said and his provision for man's sin. But there have been different time periods. I'm not one of these ultra dispensationalists that I think have taken too much time to break everything down in too much detail. There are some people that even take the message to the churches, and they say the message to the church in Ephesus represents the early church until this day, and then this message to this church represents 1640 to 1790. You know, I think that they've taken that too far. But what I'm going to give you is just a basic, and I want you to write this down because this will help you as we go through this, a basic overview of what the scripture teaches as to the different ways in which God worked. For example, when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, pretty good setup, wasn't it? But once Adam and Eve sinned, a new dispensation had to begin, didn't it? Because before there was perfection, no sin, no need to deal with sin. But once they disobeyed, they had been removed from the garden, and from that point until God gives us the law, which is a long time period, man was under the age, if you will, of conscience. And actually, the Bible talks about how God worked in that time period. And go with me real quick to uh, Romans chapter. Mm, let me see. Romans chapter 5. I'm jumping around in my notes, but this is where God's taking me, so I'm trusting Him. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not encountered or counted when there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. In other words, Adam's sin was because he broke a command, right? God said, do not eat from this tree, correct? His sin was he broke a command of God. From the time of Adam all the way until when God gives him the law through Moses, were there any commands to break? No. No. So was there no sin during that time period? Because there were no commands to break, was there no sin? There was sin. How do we know there was sin? He says here, let me read it to you again. Verse 14, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. How do we know that there was still sin in the world from the time of Adam till Moses? People died. The soul that sins, it shall die. And God was showing during that time period that even though they weren't breaking commands, they were still sinning because people died. Then we know that God sends Moses and he gives Moses and the nation of Israel the law. What's the purpose of the law, by the way? To show us our sin. The, The law didn't make you sin. The law is like an MRI. If you got cancer... The MRI machine doesn't give you cancer. The only purpose for the MRI is to show whether or not you have claustrophobia. (laughs) Okay, maybe not. But the, the purpose of the MRI is to show you what? Reveal to you the cancer that's there. It doesn't give it to you. It just magnifies it and reveals it to you. The law, and again, if you want to write this down and look at it later on, chapter 3 of Romans, verses 19 through 20, it said that the law and the prophets had, had testified to, uh, to this grace that we have now during the time of the, the law. In other words, law was added, sorry, l- sorry, 19 through 20 talks about how uh, actually, uh, well, let me just read it to you, it'd be faster than doing that. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. So in the garden, God worked one way. From the time of Adam until the time of Moses, he worked another way. From the time of Moses... Until the time of the church age, there was the time of law. Again, the law's purpose was just to show people their sin. Actually, there's a verse in Romans chapter 5, verse 20 that may surprise you. It says the law was added so that people would sin more. (laughs) If you ask most people today, does God want people to sin less or sin more? What would they say? He wants people to sin less. Wrong. He wants people to sin more. Why? Because one sin will send you to hell right? One sin will separate you from God. So does it matter if you sin a ton or no? The Bible actually says, if you're able to, James chapter two, verse 10, if you're able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all. God sent the law so that you would realize you got a problem. Problem is most people in the world today don't think they're that bad before God. Most people say, if you ask them, if you died today, would you go to heaven? They say, I think so. I'm a pretty good person. I've only done a few things. I haven't done a whole lot. They don't realize their condition. The law came to reveal you got a problem. The purpose of the law was to reveal sin. God said the law was added so that the trespass would increase. Why? God wants you to know the problem. He wants you to know you got this cancer. And the purpose of the law was to reveal your sin. Why? Because once you tried, anybody tried to keep the law? Has anybody tried? I have. Have you ever sat out one day and looked at the Ten Commandments and said, "Okay, this whole week, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to covet. I'm not going to. Oh, by the way, clarify for some of you. Jesus said that if you look lustfully upon a woman, you've committed adultery. Did anybody even make the week? I didn't. I didn't even make the day. What's the purpose of the law? to show you you got a problem, but that's ready because now you're ready for the good news. See, the bad news is everybody's guilty before God. There's no one righteous, not even one. But the good news is God's already provided for your sin. He's already paid for your sin. He sent his son to live a sinless life. He died on a cross in your place. He rose from the dead to show that he's the one who has power over life and death. And if you would just receive this free gift of salvation, God will give you righteousness. Why? Because salvation has always been in every time period by faith in God's word and his provision for your sin. I can look you in the eye and say, I'm going to heaven the moment I die. Why? Because I'm a preacher? No. Actually, the Bible says I'm going to be held in higher accountability when I stand before God. I'm not first in line because I'm a preacher. I might be last in line, but I can guarantee I'm going to heaven because of Jesus. He lived without sin. He died on the cross for my sin. He rose from the dead, and I believe it, and he gave me eternal life. Folks, I hope everybody here knows him. But listen, there was the time of the grace, I'm sorry, the time of, of, of the garden, then there was the time from Adam until the law came. And there was the time period that God worked during the time of law. And at the end of that time period, Jesus came on the scene and he's telling us about this church age, this time of grace. Now, we'll get into it more later on in our study. But the Bible also says the reason why he's saving us Gentiles during this church age is to make Israel jealous because he's not done with Israel. I got to just tell you something real quick that happened this week. As I was up at this Christian conference center um, suffering for Jesus at a lake, Actually, it was 90 degrees up there this week, but it didn't feel like 90 down here. It was wonderful. And what, I just love it when that place calls me to come preach because they have some of the most beautiful lakes. Some of you know Lake Winnipesaukee. I got to swim, swim in Lake Winnipesaukee. And you don't know how much fun it is to swim in a clear lake and not be worrying about gators. <laughs> it was, it was, I swam at dusk. I didn't care. There wasn't anything to come get me. I was having the best time. But as I was heading to go swim, I have a couple of choices because this conference center is on a private beach called Bag Bay Lake. And then it's just across the street is the tip of the bay, which is a big, beautiful area. There's a dock there. You can just jump off and swim. And it's so deep, you can't touch the bottom. So as I was heading to the big part of the lake, I felt like God was, again, I've been trying to teach you all along how to listen to the spirit as you're going. I felt like God told me to go to the little bay. Now, I'll be honest with you wasn't my first choice, This Little Bay's not as nice as the Big Bay, but I thought, okay, Lord, if you want me to go there, I'll just head over there, and I put my towel down and my sandals, and I took off my shirt, and uh, wowed everybody with my six-pack abs, and uh, um, <laughs> as I was getting toward the lake, I heard someone out in the water, a way, way out a little bit, but the sound echoes across the lake. They go, he lives over by Cape Canaveral. <laughs> I said, I live over by Cape Canaveral. So I went over and and I said, I heard Cape Canaveral. And they turned and they said, oh, we were just talking about you. (laughs) I said, fill me in. Fill me in. Come to find out there was a lady there named Diane who, she is not a believer, but she's a Jew. But she has friends that were believers, and they invited her to come to the camp. And she had come to my teaching the night before. And she, as she put it, was mesmerized. She's thinking about moving to Florida. She goes, what's it like where you are? And I explained how awesome it is, and this wonderful little secret we have where we are. And she said, uh, do the people there like Jewish people? I go, there's a lot of Jewish people, and we love them. I said, actually, God loves the Jewish people, and let me tell you what God's got in mind for the Jewish people, and I laid out God's plan. And then I said this to her. I said, and the, one of the main reasons he's saving us Gentiles is to make you Jews jealous so that you'll come to faith. Folks, what happened next made me want to shout. I've never heard a Jew say this. This means we're getting close. She said, I am jealous. I want what you have. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) To hear a Jew say, I am jealous? And I had the chance to share the gospel with her and explain to her that she was still trying to intellectually accept it. I gave her some Old Testament passages that pointed to Jesus and we're going to leave her to God. But I heard a Jew say, I am jealous. Get your jumping shoes on, folks. <laughs> He's going to start moving the drawing from the Gentiles back to the Jews one day. And I saw it happen in one. And I hope she comes to faith. I sure hope she does. There." After this age of grace, this church age, remember there was the garden, time from Adam to Moses, the law from Moses until Jesus, from Jesus until the rapture is what we call the church age or the age of grace. What's next? Does anybody know? Tribulation. 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 Chapter four of Revelation. That's why we're studying this. When the scripture says the time is near, what he's saying is the next time period is what you're to write down about here, John. It's the next thing. The rapture can occur at any moment. Too many of us have been told the rapture starts the tribulation period. No, there could be a rapture today and the tribulation period doesn't start for 50 years. What starts the tribulation period is the confirming of the covenant between Israel and the many. But we are close because this is the end of this time period. And God, in the way that he works things out, Does things in around 2,000-year time periods, doesn't he? Didn't he create the world in 6,000, or 6 days, which represent 6,000 years? And on the seventh day, he rested, which is that 1,000-year tribulation period coming. Again, we're not here to predict, but I'm just to teach you the Scripture. Blessed are those who read this book and take to heart what's written in it, because what we're going to be looking at in chapter 4 and on Is next and it's near all right now how do we take it to heart the same way that you do Psalm 119 verse 11 what does Psalm 119 verse 11 say I'll get it started for you many of you can finish it if I start it thy word have I hid in my heart that I might what might not sin against you in other words God I read your word I treasured it I had it in my heart so that I would let that guide me instead of my flesh Blessed are those who read this book and take to heart what it says. Why? Because as things continue to get worse, and they're going to, will you, folks, you do realize America's not listed? As we look at Revelation, you won't find us. It is not going to get better for the U.S. I still pray for it, I still vote for it, but let me just tell you. There's a lot of things from Scripture that show that God has already given us over to our lusts. You read Romans chapter 1. The Bible says that there comes a point where God gives individuals and nations over to their lusts. Does anybody know what the evidence that that a nation's been given over to their lusts is? Homosexuality. The Bible says it very clearly in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Men with men, women with women. And that's evidence that we've been given over. And as our nation, little by little, has been having this state and then that state and then this state approve it, and then the Supreme Court, folks, we have been given over. The Bible actually says in the Book of Daniel, chapter four, and fall in in that section there, around verse eleven, that God determines who's in authority in each nation to raise them up or to tear them down. They'll put me in jail with a lady from Kentucky who, praise the Lord, just got freed today. Our president, I believe, is one of those things where God says, you want to go that way, I'll give you what you want. And it's a part of us being given over. Hey, I'm not telling you to give up because we don't know what God's plan is. But if I'm going to be safe and faithful to the scriptures, the Bible says things are going to get worse and worse. Blessed are those of us, though, who know what happens from chapter four on and take to heart what the scripture says. Because it will be a guidance for us and a blessing for us in the days to come, as we know what's happening. And, every, and actually, as things continue to get worse, and as you're about to see, as we lay this all out, you're going to see all of a sudden things that are happening across the globe and things that are happening. Like even, for example, in the last four years, the nation of Turkey, all of a sudden becoming an enemy when it used to be an ally. When all along the Bible said they were an enemy in the last days. All of a sudden you're going to see all the things in the world that the Bible said all along were going to be in place at the final. You're going to all of a sudden go, everything's right on schedule. Alright so let's go to chapter 4 and let's see what happens then. Revelation chapter 4. Some of you that are new saying, is he ever going to get to chapter 4? My answer is, I don't know either. And we'll, we'll jump all over. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through, we'll stop in verse 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, in this section here, John, who, if we were to take back a look at chapter 1, while he was on the earth there on the island of outmost, he heard a voice like a trumpet, and he turned around, and who did he see? He saw Jesus. And if you don't know that, go back and read chapter 1, it'll catch you up. He turns around and he sees Jesus. Remember the flaming, flaming sword out of his mouth? Had in his hand the seven stars and the seven lampstands, but he was standing amongst them and all. And now after he was, he was told, well, go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, and look at what he was told to write. He says, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. John's told to write down three different things. What he has seen, he writes down in chapter one of what he saw on the vision of Jesus. In chapters two and three, in the messages to the churches, he writes what is. This is the church age. And in, then chapter four, he's. Writes what he was told, the third thing, and the things that take place after this. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked and behold, the door was standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. But again, I I want to just hammer this word must one more time. Does anybody know what John chapter 3, verse 7 says? If you don't, that's okay, I'll get you started. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, you must be born again. By the way, does the word must mean must? In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, let me get it started for most of you. There is one name under heaven by which we must be saved. Does that word must mean must when it comes to Acts 4, 12? Sure does. Same word. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 54. Go ahead and turn there. Matthew 26, verses 47 through 54. Look at what Jesus says here. Matthew 26, verse 47. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, Judas came one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, "'Greetings, Rabbi,' and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, "'Friend, do what you came to do.' They came, then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, "'Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He'll at once send more than twelve legions of angels?' But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Is that word again? I could show you three or four or five other places. All the way through, the word must means must, right? So folks, when we do the study of Revelation, are these things going to happen or are they symbolic? They're going to happen. Better it will be that we study it and know what it says is going to happen next. So John is told, come up here now. All right, You've given the message to the churches, and we're going to deal with some of those as we get into chapter 4. But he says, "I want not you come up here, and I want you to see what must take place after this. And then he says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, folks, if you were to take the time and to do a study, you'll find that John's not the first person that had been taken into heaven. Does anybody else know of somebody else in the Bible that had been able to come and see heaven? Paul had. But now what did Paul say? He said, I wasn't allowed to write about what I saw. But there were two other people that we have recorded that got to see heaven and were able to write about it. Does anybody know who they are? Isaiah in chapter six. He saw the throne of God and Ezekiel in chapter one. He saw the throne of God. Now, we're not going to take the time now. We may do it next week. But if you did a study, you'd find that actually what Isaiah sees and what Ezekiel sees and what John sees all looks alike. You're going to see that. Ezekiel describes the living creatures that John is going to describe here in chapter 4. And they both, Ezekiel and John, both describe that rainbow that's around the throne. Cool story, real quick. I know of a man who actually was in the hospital here at, at Holmes. And I went to visit him. And he was a believer. And there was a stretch where he had left his body. But then he'd come back by God's design. And I asked him, I said, what would you see? He goes, be honest with you, I, all I could see was a rainbow. I go, he goes, that's weird, isn't it? I'm like, no. And I showed him Ezekiel chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 4 about the fact that around the throne of God was the rainbow. By the way, when's the first time we see the rainbow in the scriptures? Does anybody know? At the time of Noah. God puts a rainbow in the sky to promise that he'd never flood the earth over again. By the way, where did that promise come from? Straight from God's throne. There's a rainbow. The beauty of God and the beauty of light and color surrounds him in such a way that when people get into his presence, they just see the glory of the rainbow. That's kind of a cool thing that he would have a rainbow be the representation of his promise it came straight from the throne. Now. Yeah, unfortunately, it's been desecrated, but sorry. God still got it. God still got it. Hey, listen to this. If you did a study, though, you will also find that when John sees heaven, he sees 24 thrones around the throne. Ezekiel never saw 24 thrones around the throne. Isaiah never saw 24 thrones around the throne. And i'm not going to take the time tonight but i promise you we will do that next week i'm going to show you from scripture that the 24 thrones around the throne and the 24 elders seated on the thrones is the church and at this point when he said come up here and i'll show you what must take place after this the church is already in heaven The rapture has occurred prior to what we're going to look at in chapter 4. So many people try to make the chapter 4 the rapture. No, when he got up there, they already were there. He says, come up here and I'll show you what's going to take place after this. And when he gets up there, the church is already there. And folks, when I lay it out for you next week, I'm going to show you with a lot of Scripture. It's very, very clear. I'm just going to explain to you, you where I'm coming from ahead of time. And please understand, I know that I will be held in higher accountability. James chapter 1, verse 3 says, Not all of you should seek to be teachers, because those of us who teach will be held in higher accountability before God. My role in what God wants me to do in the church is to stand before people all over this country and say, Thus says the Lord. I don't take that lightly. I'm not gonna be just throwing words out at you and telling you what I think. What, if it comes out of my mouth, it's because I've prayed over it, I've wrestled with it, and I believe God has said it from his word and I know I'll be judged for it. Listen closely. I believe the Bible teaches without question that the church will be raptured before the beginning of what we know as the tribulation period or the things that are gonna happen from chapter four on. Now, if I had to vote, that's my one I'd pick too. <laughs> But I'm going to take the time through this study to show you. And as we look at it chronologically, I will give you evidences from scripture. Again, let me give you a couple of scriptural evidences I don't want you to use. For too long, people say, well, when God uh, judged Sodom and Gomorrah, he took his righteous ones out before the judgment came. So that proves that we're going to be raptured before. Some of you might have known a guy named Jim Johnson who wrote a book on principles of a God-centered church. And you remember chapter two, which deals with the first principle, how God may not duplicate a method. And how nowhere in scripture did I find God doing the same thing the same way. He never healed a blind person the same way twice. He never, when he said drink the rock the first time they were to strike it, the next time they were to speak to it. The walls of Jericho were successful, right? Did they ever walk around another city? No. And one of the passions of mine as I travel and speak to churches is stop living by the church manual. Stop saying this is how it's always to be done. You can't walk with God and say this is how it's always to be done. Well, if God may not duplicate a method, we cannot say that if he took Lot and his wife out before the judgment, that means he's going to rapture us. Horrible theology, horrible way to study the scriptures. Because did he take Noah and his family out before he judged the earth? No, he left them there. So are we going to be left here now? Or are we going to be taken out. You've got to let the scripture speak truth. Don't just use this story. And that means he's going to do it that way with us. I'm going to show you from scripture that the Bible teaches that we're not here. And one of the greatest evidences is in Revelation chapter four, when we get to it next week of the 24 elders and Revelation chapter seven and 14, which we will jump to not very long away when we come to the ceiling of the 144,000. All right. I want to do one last thing, though, because to get into our study of the 24 elders would really be wrong at this point, because I'm looking at my clock here and we've got eight minutes left. I'm going to start that next week. But in the time that we have left, I want to do one thing. I want to read to you what Jesus said to the church at the end of the church age. Like I told you, I believe we're at the end of the church age. I believe that the rapture of the church could be at any moment, and what God's going to do in the world that's coming up that we're going to be studying, the pieces are being put into place like you wouldn't believe, at a rapid rate. So if I think we're at the end of the church age, I would be wrong not to read to you what Jesus said to the church in the last days. Go to Revelation chapter 3, look at verses 14 through 22. And to the angel, the messenger of the church in Laodicea, right, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. By the way, that's when you're left behind when he raptures the true church. Those you're about to see, he says something to the church that may surprise you. He says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, for you say I'm rich and I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Oh, by the way, all of those words I could take the time to show you all the way through Scripture were descriptions of the lost. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Does that sound familiar? Well, we'll get to that next week. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, not to the church at Laodicea, but to who? The church is all the way through. As much as Jesus wrote to specific literal churches, each one, he says, hear what the Spirit says to all the churches. How many of you remember the old painting of Jesus standing at a garden door and knocking? Remember that old painting? And you remember how there wasn't a handle on the outside. It was only could be opened from the inside. Remember all that? And for years, we've had evangelists preaching, Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking. And if you just open the door, he'll give you salvation. And we thought that it was just to the lost. Well, it is. But in context, who did Jesus say that to? The church in the last days. See, the problem is in a lot of our churches, we're proud of our membership. I'm a member. But you know, as I travel around and try to get the church woke up and ready for the return of Jesus, you know what I deal with the most? I deal with conflict, dissension, envy, jealousy, factions, strife, backbiting, gossip. By the way, I hate to tell you this, but I need to tell you this. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 5 verse 19 and following that the acts of the flesh are obvious. Dissension, faction, envy, strife, backbiting. It even lists orgies. And it says those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul even said in in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when he's dealing with all the conflict in the church in in Corinth, he goes, I hear there's some divisions among you in your church. And and I'm not surprised because there have to be divisions to find to find out which of you really have the spirit. It's time that we woke up to the fact that the Bible says that those who live like this, call them church members all you want, they're not Christians. The evidence, the Bible says that those of us who have the Spirit, in the rest of that chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 22, but the fruit of the evidence of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, not jockeying for position not trying to get your way in the business meeting, but living a life that says God's God and I'm just gonna do what he has for me to do. I'm gonna love people and I'm gonna let God take care of the people that need to be taken care of. I'm gonna live the life that I have and let Him live through me. And folks, let me just say to you, as I show you what's going to come, and as I get us ready for the fact that he's gonna gather his church and take us to be with him, there'll be many that are left behind because they were proud of their membership Or the fact they prayed a prayer one day or the fact that they were baptized, but there was never any evidence of Jesus sealing the deal. Let me take you to one passage of scripture that I want you to see, because I don't want you to take my word for it. Go to John chapter 2. Look at verses 23 and 24. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he, meaning Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Listen closely. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. In other words, here's some people that saw the miracles. They believed. Jesus said, it's not real faith. Doesn't the parable of the soil say the seed fell on the rocky soil, sprung up, sure looked good, but then trouble came and it went away because they weren't really saved. Seed fell on the thorny soil, sprung up, sure fooled a lot of people, but cares of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choked it. And they went away because they had no root. Folks, listen to me. It is not my desire to scare you. I believe that the Spirit of God is able to show us where we are. There's a big difference between wondering if you're saved. I've been down that road. We've all been messed with by Satan in that arena. There's a big difference between wondering if you're saved and knowing you're lost. As we have read this last part, as I have been sharing this caution to you at the end of the church age, if the Spirit of God has revealed to you that you're not saved, even if you're a church member, humble yourself and get it right. Because I don't want anybody in this room to be spit out when he takes us to be with him. I don't want you to be on this earth when what we're about to study is going to happen. Where do you see? You don't want to be here. And so, folks, let me just say this to you. If you need to get right with God, don't put it off. You don't have to even go talk to the preacher. You can talk to God yourself, and he'll respond. Let me challenge you. If you have settled that issue and say, you know, I wasn't saved, but now I am. Because you gave your life to Christ. I want you to go to whatever church you go to and you go tell the leadership and you say, I want to be baptized. I've had that happen in my family. My wife's father did that here in this church at 48 years old. And let me just tell you, the change in his life was amazing. Even though he had grown up in this church, had been a deacon, had been chairman of deacons. There came a point at 48 years old that the Lord by himself got a hold of him and said, you don't know me. Yeah, you prayed a prayer when you were four, but you never have known me. You know, the Bible actually says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? Folks, I can look you in the eye and say, I'm going to heaven when I die. You know why? Not just because I believed, but also because he's confirmed it by giving me his spirit. And that's a wonderful place. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Again, not here to make anybody nervous, because I believe God's able to show you where you stand. But if you walk out of here tonight knowing that God has told you you're not saved, please don't put it off. The spitting out is going to happen soon. And if it doesn't happen between now and next week, I'll see you on Tuesday. Thanks for coming. (laughs)